I have no idea where this will lead us, but I have a definite feeling it will be a place both wonderful and strange. Oh, and welcome to the wonderful and strange Twin Peaks Logcast. I'm Khalil, and with me today is the little pine weasel to my nose. Oh, no. That is the way you make me feel. Screaming, flailing around, aimlessly in pain. Well, clearly this was all a bad idea, so you shouldn't have had me even close to you for that reason. So, no, this this is your fault. Who are you again? Uh, I'm apparently the unplugged professor who is also the weasel in danger, as I feel now. And because of you, I have experienced the title of this episode, episode 24, Wounds and Scars. (laughs) (laughs) Dick's remains may be of a physical nature, mine are purely of a mental and spiritual nature. And we also have a few other mental scars that are just coming up for almost all characters Mm -hmm. involved. So, Ah! Apt, apt title. App title. I feel like we never officially created a section where we review the titles, but we've been doing that for a while now where we say if the title's good or bad. Yeah, I, I think it's because that it it's, it kind of comes off as like a gut punch within like I the suppose, fast few. Because so. you never really also know the title until I just say it. So yeah. it's a it's just a band-aid being quickly removed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with, like when you remove a band-aid, there's one or two reactions, pain or pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> you well, know. Well, I hope that someone's having pleasure out of that. Out of this, so... Uh, This episode was written by Barry Pullman, who previously had written episodes 12 and 18. 12, you may remember, is the episode where Harold, by the end, was raking his face. Oh. And 18 was the first appearance of your favorite Twin Peaks female character, Evelyn Marsh. You know, I can kind of see it with a little bit of the style that kind of, like, is present throughout this episode. Really? Yeah. No, I can tell. This Uh, is the writing, you know, not the directing. It is the... Oh, it is the writing. The okay. writing. Okay. okay. Yes, it's written by Barry Pullman. Okay. Can you tell the writing is similar? Because I can't. <laughs> I suppose I can't immediately connect it, but hey, maybe if I watch it back to back, I can make myself a good confirmation bias for it. So. Okay. Well, since <laughs> you were so quick to assume the directing similarities, I'm happy to tell you that this is a first-time director of Twin Peaks, so you shouldn't have noticed any directing similarities. It was directed by James Foley, oh. who is not a Twin Peaks director, as I just mentioned, but he is a film director of sorts. Uh, he directed a film called Glengarry Glen Ross back in, I believe, the late 80s, which is an adaptation of like a David Mamet play. Uh, and then he also directed Fifty Shades Darker and Fifty Shades Freed. Oh, uh, on an unrelated note, uh, he also directed 12 episodes of House of Cards and a bunch of other random episodes. If you look at like, the IMDb page, there's sprinkles here and there. So I don't really know what the trend is because Glengarry Glen Ross is just like a bunch of arguing old white people about finances. And Fifty Shades is, how would you best describe Fifty Shades? A series of what some would find romantic scenarios that I can only hope did not result in accidents in the bedroom. That is certainly one way to put it. Uh, So between accidents in the market and accidents in the bedroom, uh, hey, House of Cards kind of fits both of those things. It's a merger (laughs) of the two, right? There we go. Uh, So that's that's James Foley. I I really can't say I notice a consistent directing style because I've seen Glenn Glary, Glenn Ross, uh, to be honest, I wasn't really a fan of the movie, but that's more in the writing side than in the directing. Uh, and I and I guess I didn't really, I wouldn't have been able to connect that. Uh, I thought the episode was directed competently. 
It wasn't, it didn't have a lot of flourishes that seemed like very different from the norm though. Did you notice anything in the way this episode was shot that seemed different than the others? I mean, there were certain like ways in which the camera would pan back uh, and kind of have like a nice little zoom on things like Cooper's head as he's addressing both the log lady and major Briggs. I thought sure. that was a very nice shot. Uh, I think that the sort of montage at the beginning different from the usual recap okay. was very creative to say the least. You know what? You won me over. Those are two good, good examples of them. only needed two. only needed two. And you know, it only takes two to tango. So Ed needs to split up with Nadine. Wait, you said to tango. Yes. This is, this is no tango. No this one's close is... to one another. Well, it's there's a loss of passion. Whatever, whatever it is, Jacoby's paying a home visit to these two. He is. He's being the mediator between them. And there's the very complicated matter of Nadine just kind of like bluntly saying, no, no, this is just a big breakup. I understand. I'm a big girl now. I understand that we're in the dating phase. Well, and she finds it cute how Ed keeps getting embarrassed, you know? Yep. Ed is just taking this way too serious. Mm -hmm. uh, Nadine, this, high school these girl. These are the dating years. Which we are, we do have an age that has been stated by Cooper, which was uh, Nadine, 35. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. she is, yep, those, I mean, you can date in those years, but... At the same time, it definitely puts up a very strange air that Ed has to now try to find his way to maneuver around. And when, like, Jacoby just kind of comes up and just kind of blatantly states it on how she's not going to recover until one day when her securities sort mm -hmm. of, like, let loose. Yeah, he compares it to dissolving scar tissue around a wound. Uh, he starts to say that he's not really sure when that'll happen, but at some point her mind will start to feel safe. She'll see reality again. And right after that, you know, Jacoby flatly says, you know, you're about to get a divorce. Nadine does seem to have a slight break in reality where she notices that she is in fact blind in one eye. Like how did the perception go at first then? Like where was the depth perception? Somewhere. Somewhere in Nadine's spirit. Somewhere in Nadine's spirit. I think it's interesting also by this point, you have seen way more of Nadine like this than you ever did of her normally, quote unquote, like her life in season one. Mm -hmm. We see her later in the episode and she is uh, known as Mrs. Hinkman, obviously. And no, Mr. And Mrs. Hinkman uh, no. take the special honeymoon suite over at the Great Northern. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're from Bozeman originally, but, you know, it's nice to see the countryside mm -hmm. now and then. And they're just 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 stay until tomorrow. Snake, you know? Is that you? He's. He's spotted by Susan, the the Twin Peaks character we all know and love. Yep, that is known for staying at the hotel in the same town she goes to the school at. Well, I don't think she was staying at the hotel. I think she might have been there for the other event that was happening oh, yeah, at the you hotel know what? That, that night. That's true. That's true. She was just well, though she seemed like she was leaving before the action started. So <laughs> there was a certain event happening conveniently at the Great Northern that night, which we will get to momentarily. But in the meantime, we saw Mike, and it does seem to be somewhat consensual. It does seem... Unless he's being forced. There's a knife secretly behind his back, stabbing him the whole time. <laughs> you saw what Nadine did to that bell. She needs no knife. She that is, is true. the knife. That is true. <laughs> she is the knife. Again, I can only hope it's consensual, but there's always the hard turn of consent when Nadine, unfortunately, isn't quite in the best mindset at the moment. Well, and, I, and we're led to believe that, like, Donna and Mike are still in high school, but probably 18. I hope 18. I distinctly very hope he is a senior 18. He has more autonomy than others may in this potential dynamic. So let's assume he's 18. Let's assume that Nadine and he have a consensual relationship. How do you feel about it? Still, the fact that Nadine is still not fully in her full mind makes it still kind of 
I don't I know mean, how to was feel. She, was she fuller in her mind before when she was living a horrible, sad, depressed life of a, of, a, of a housewife trying to make the drape runner work? It seems like now she's finally found happiness. You know, maybe it's not the same type of reality that we live in, but it is a reality. It is a reality, but when like she feels like less need to keep up these insecurities, how will she feel afterwards? Again, mm. I don't know how much she will consent to that. So it's the complication of having these two selves with herself that we'll definitely see a result by the end, right, Khalil? I cannot right, confirm nor deny. <laughs> you do not know what happens. You do not know what happens. It's all going to work out for everyone. Everyone's going to be happy. It's going to be a stalemate. It's going to be a checkmate. Uh, we, not checkmate, stalemate. We will have one thing conclude, though, and if Ben has anything to do about it, and he will stop Ghostwood. <laughs> that is the event happening at the Great Northern. Yeah. Uh, earlier, we have the preparations for the show. Uh, there's a great moment, which we'll talk about later, Wyndham Earl side, but it transitions from Wyndham Earl playing the flute to uh, kind of a pan-up shot of Audrey walking the runway, showing these girls how to properly strut on the runway. Uh, mm -hmm. They don't really seem to be having it too much, and they're having it even less when Dick Tremaine shows up <laughs> wearing a wonderful white and blue outfit with the scarf. Looking dashing. Look, I'm I am obviously not exactly the biggest Dick Tremaine fan for his morals, but I'll admit this is his best outfit and probably one of the best outfits in the show. Mm -hmm. he, he wears it well. He's he's got like a little bit of that like a uh, little bit of that Seto Kaiba kind of vibe going off, you know? Does he? Yeah, the white and blue. He's gonna. Anyway, I'm not gonna continue this. It seemed more purplish if I, I was. No, it. I was not purple. <laughs> You're purple. <laughs> Yeah. Blues and purple side, I'm colorblind, you're colorblind, who cares? It's a great outfit. And also, I will accept your compliment because the color purple means royalty, regalness. Mm -hmm. Just the like thing, A gift from God to the men and women below in which I will put myself before Tremaine for, but you can have your own interpretation. Are you referring to the great God of fitness that uh, Dick Tremaine <laughs> invokes upon seeing what he says were two women who would both delightfully represent the sanctity of nature? Mm-hmm. Uh, really, really good to see Dick Tremaine back, isn't it? <laughs> it's an event, to say the least. And then Audrey shows up, you know, have you spoke to Pinkle? What's a Pinkle? Yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> like, I remember Pinkle? Pinkle enough. Pinkle has a distinctive enough name, and let's call it a personality. But the fact that, how do you feel, Khalil, that Pinkle and Tremaine are joining together one-on-one -on -one to talk about weasels as weasels themselves? To be honest, I'd completely forgotten that that was the same guy who, uh, who was in an episode prior. Mm -hmm. So he was the one who gave uh, Bobby and Shelly the device for Leo, right? Yes, the, correct. Well, I don't know if he actually gave it to them because they never kept it, <laughs> from what we could tell. Pinkle made attempts. Again, weasels with weasels talking about weasels. Wonderful, wonderful. I, I would, would argue that... I don't know if I would. <laughs> I don't know if I'd call you know Dick Tremaine a weasel. I think Dick Tremaine is more of a lion, you know, more more of the king of the pride, you know? No, oh, yeah, if we had to choose a line, uh, which one would you choose? Because I choose Scar. Hey, so the we most weaselly of I the lines. I am on Team Scar, so absolutely, <laughs> justice for the hyenas, man. Uh, I'm sorry, but unfortunately, Dick Tremaine has a way with words, and well, those words are kind of published on the back of an apology letter that he had someone else write. Mm. So, Well, just as, you know, the, the circle of life is round, so is a wheel. Speaking of wheels, John Justice Wheeler <laughs> was there as well. I, I don't think I can recover from that t t 
sharp turn. And this wheel took a sharp turn on the road as he approached Audrey Horn. And they just start like tripping over their own apologies. Each one is saying they're sorry for their behavior at the previous dinner, only to forget why they were apologizing and plan a picnic together. Yeah, it seems like they're having more of a romance than I half expected. And it seems that there is still a little bit of hesitance with Audrey, but mm -hmm. nonetheless, it looks like they're working really off well one another, even with my current suspicions. Uh, what did you think of John Justice Wheeler's uh, singing talents? He Here's the f interesting thing. With Billy Zane, it's almost as if like the, that was the harder point for them to adjust the audio for modern mm. day with the Blu-rays. Like, you can kind of get a little bit more graininess out of his delivery, or at the very least from what I noticed. Uh, than I've seen in the rest of the show. So he definitely has a very distinct candor, as the microphones may agree. Hmm. I, yeah, I had no idea about that. I watched mm -hmm. it on Netflix at home, and I yeah. didn't pick up any of that. <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean for us lay people who don't know what you're talking about? It's There's a little bit of graveliness, gravelly nature and just graininess to the sound of his voice. That like naturally? It's very soft. Um, n not naturally per se. It's what's kind of transferred into the microphone, which is put into this electronic media that we see on our television screens and then produced outwards. Regardless, it definitely had a quality that I wasn't expecting. But he definitely has a unique voice. Is he a better or worse singer than James for the Just You song? <laughs> or or uh, obviously Leland Palmer. I Those mean, are our three singers. I won't lie. Billy Zane, you can tell he's talented. Mm -hmm. You can tell he sings well. Mm -hmm. You can tell that he has swooned many hearts. Yes, But perhaps. it's not unique enough for me. Mm. Whereas the Just You James performance is the right amount of unique. Actually, kinda. Okay. Like, I, I will take... The fun singing of Leland dancing around, I will take the uh, rather overdramatic tone of James sitting down singing Just You. I will even take anything that... maybe. May, maybe. I will take anything that Pete has in his catalog of musical <laughs> knowledge. But at the same time, this Ooh. one seems in its own place. Rough. It's... Again, it seems like a talented man. He has uh -huh. shown he's a talented man. Well, at least he's using his music for a good cause. Because as he notes, he feels that Audrey should have been serenaded at least once or twice by this point in her life. Mm -hmm. You know, to which Audrey says, I don't inspire much singing. Most boys are afraid. Now, why, Professor, do you imagine a boy might be afraid to serenade Audrey Horn? Probably because of Ben. Probably because of Big Ben. Probably because of Big Ben, yes. There's also... People just happen to disappear sometimes. There's also just a fun <laughs> energy that Billy Zane brings to the character. Mm -hmm. He has a snappiness to his lines that I can really appreciate. Like when they're planning the picnic, there's a point in which like Audrey's like, I can't cook. It's like, I think the people in the kitchen do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> He's charming, to say the least. Yeah, of course, of course. He's also very suspicious, and I will... Leave that in that <laughs> well, camp uh, you know, until he's... I'm proven wrong, and even then, I'll mumble. Fair enough. Uh, Audrey, you know, makes the claim that she feels like nobody really knows her, right? And, and he takes that to be a warning, but... What do you think? Do you think Audrey's right that no one really knows her? Or is she being a dramatic teenager? Prepare to roll your eyes, but no one really knows anyone. Okay, I roll my eyes. <laughs> I don't think you fully get to know people, and I think that there's a point in which people kind of have to accept that with themselves. Is that the sense you think Audrey meant that? Do you I, think Audrey meant that in that existential sort of way of you never really know anyone, we all die alone, et cetera, et cetera? <laughs> I don't think that's what she meant, but I think that that's an area in which she might have to accept for herself. So what do you think she meant? It might be around the same ballpark, though. I think that there's this amount of disconnect that she feels with the environment environment around her, especially since mm -hmm. there are people who apparently 
can't really connect with her outright. There's people who will stay away being intimidated. Mm -hmm. So I do think that Audrey does feel lonely. And inside of her own home and household, her closest connection seems to be to Ben. I mean, Mm -hmm. we never see her mother again. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, it seems that Johnny's not exactly having the best time himself when he is facing his own personal matters. I guess for me, I think that when Audrey said that, she meant that there really isn't anyone who sees her the way she sees herself. That people look at her and they see the daughter of Benjamin Horn, and she lives in that shadow. And that she's someone who becomes very unapproachable. She's a bit strange, a bit odd, a bit aloof. But a lot of her tactics early into like season one seem like the sort of childish, almost sarcastic, playful sort of manner that I think comes as a wall. Mm -hmm. And as she tries to establish herself now as a businesswoman, essentially, um, I think she still has that sense of a wall that is hard for people to actually chisel through. Mm -hmm. And she really drew herself to Cooper as as someone from the outside world who seems to have an intuition about him. Mm -hmm. Cooper is someone who seems to peer past appearances. Mm Mm-hmm. And cut through that superficial. That maybe someone like her, obviously, Cooper could bring the allure of an outside adventure that she seeks. Get out of the Great Northern, get out of Twin Peaks, and go somewhere. But I also think the kind of person Cooper is, he notices things about people that you might otherwise not notice. Yeah. There's a moment, like, and I think it's in the pilot, when he, like, notices, like, immediately, like, how long have you been dating her, uh, Harry? You know, referring to Josie. He just picks up on things in the room very well. And I think for Audrey, who wants to be noticed who wants to be recognized the way she sees herself. I, I think that that might be appealing. And John Justice Wheeler, at the very least, is looking at her. Yeah. What does he see? I don't know. I'll leave that for you to figure I'll out. Leave it to whatever <laughs> the cosmos want to give back to me. Speaking of things to see in the cosmos, very beautiful shot uh, at the picnic. Like when they actually are done talking and it just kind of lingers for a moment at like a distance shot. We get the lake with like a log on it or whatever. But the picnic area where there's like these fall leaves all around sort of that sort of orange-auburn almost color. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sky is a great color from the time of day. I don't know if it's like an early, maybe like a twilightish kind of feeling. I don't know. It was a very calm, peaceful moment. And then there's uh, Audrey grabbing the apple and feeding it to John Wheeler. <laughs> and he's trying to like navigate that with his hand, like where to turn the <laughs> apple and stuff. I thought it was a really, really nice shot. Mm-hmm. Now let's take a shot at the pine weasel. Uh, yeah, there was, going back a little bit, the Pinkle as well as... Dick Tremaine, they were having a good conversation with each other at an early point, being like, he's just like holding on to this little like taxidermy Taxidermy. model Mm -hmm. of the weasel. And Dick Tremaine, probably the only thing that I would ever agree with him on is the idea that trying to save this pine weasel and then showing like a dead, killed and stuffed pine weasel might might be a little bit tactless, Uh, might be a little bit tactless taxidermy, tactless taxidermy indeed. And no, uh, as we'll, we'll come up to it later, but it, luckily Mr. Pinkle understood, and got he the message. A live one. <laughs> yeah, oh, <laughs> and it all was better. It all was better. Hey, it was the life of the party. It was a life of something. Uh, but before we go too far into that, the Stop Ghostwood project, let's just face it, uh, it is a, a rather extravagant event. It is. We open up with Ben Horn thanking his rather impressive turnout. Glad to see their sincerity about the environment. And one thing I really enjoy about this whole scene of events Mm -hmm. is that Benjamin Horn is on this tightrope walking between 
is he sincere or is he lying through his teeth? Like, there's like a brilliant moment with that when like Benjamin Horn, like Catherine comes around and just checks up on him. Sure. And it's just like, okay, so really, Ben, what's this about? And Ben is there dipping some milk and cookies and just being like, no, oh, I am being sure. Well, I was even going to talk about before that, though. Can I oh, can okay. I talk about that first? Sure. Okay, so when he's given that speech, right, he, he has a very noticeable pause where he says, it's glad to see your sincerity about the environment. And it's a very, like, noticeable pause before he says the word sincerity, which, of course, could be one of two things. One, he's choosing the right word in a normal speech. Or two, it's the irony of he's not being sincere. That's up to you as the viewer to determine, right? And then he talks about how they're trying to stop this rabid development of interests that's going to result in an amusement park. I think it's the first allegation we've actually had of what they're going to do with this land, right? Um, he said uh, it would turn it into a monstrous amusement park that would destroy the little worlds and sanctums of endangered species. I mean, it certainly is a stance. I didn't know if it was a fully literal one or something metaphorical. We don't know. He just used the terminology amusement park. Mm -hmm. So whether that's literal or fictional... I don't know. Metaphorical. Not fictional. Metaphorical. Well, it could be, yeah, true. It would be literal within the fiction if it happens. It, It's literal in the fiction if it happens, but there's the metaphor of it being for our own personal amusement, for something that is sure. for one's personal gain and high, if you will. Either way, he is very careful to remind his audience that ecology is not a luxury science. It is not about pleasant appearances. It is about survival and whether we're all going to make it. And again, if it's all a fake thing, that would make sense. He is doing this for survival so he can make it. I right? mean, it's his own survival at stake. It could be the survival of more so his financial end, or it could be the survival of his soul. Because, like I mentioned before, as having delicious cookies uh, and milk, a, a, a very just fun visual. Catherine's mm -hmm. just like t interrogating. I was like, no, what is this really about? Was like, well, why don't you write a big old check? Because right now, big old Ben, he is trying to scrub the dark, dark conscious, the big black sort of festering emotional uh -huh. like pit of his soul and trying to scrub it clean because he is done with all that. And you know what? Maybe Catherine, you can have a chance at it too. Maybe you too can like scrub your conscience clean. And Catherine just tells him to save his born again sales pitch for someone else. <laughs> and it's still hilarious because he is very dedicated on this. And I don't know if the scene we saw in the last episode when he is trying to make up this plan and Jerry is putting it, it together his own connections, mm -hmm. Ben doesn't really respond to that either. No, he doesn't so, say yes or no. No. Which, again, leaves it as purposeful ambiguity. Not even, like, attention, though. Like, he's just yeah, he almost just ignores it. it. Yeah, he just ignores it. And I, I do like the imagery of the milk and cookies because what could be more innocent than milk and cookies? Like, is this truly, like, Ben getting fully in character or are we seeing, like, a Ben who has truly seen the error of his ways? I don't feel for the second option, but I'm intrigued by the whole scenario. He, nonetheless. he at least has not lost his audacity or his way of words. He, uh, he at the end of his speech to Catherine, urges her to transcend a lifetime of megalomania and egocentricity and write them a big fat check to stop Ghostwood. Which the, <laughs> the audacity, again, to ask the person who owns the Ghostwood land development to write them a check to stop said development I'm very is great. <laughs> I love it. It is definitely a directed slap in some ways in Catherine's face. So what do you personally believe? Do you believe Catherine's side that this is an act? Or do you believe it's genuine? I'm going to keep asking you this probably every time, but <laughs> we currently don't have an answer either oh, way. Oh, Ben, I can't tell if Ben himself is a weasel or not. So that It's hard to say. It's much easier to tell with someone like Discount Ben and Pinkle, but... 
Ben himself? Discount mm. Ben? Yeah, Dick. Dick Tremaine is not a discount Ben. They're Dick. not the same type of person. <laughs> Just because they're both powerful men does not mean they're the same person. Powerful men with strong words and a certain eloquence, but except one seems to be more successful than the other, even at his low point of being a general. But besides my very strongly worded points, mm-hmm. I don't know. That is an upsetting answer even for myself. I want to believe that this is a ruse. I want to believe that it's true. I don't know where this is Wait, going. Wait, you want to believe it's a ruse and it's true? What I do you want mean? to. I want to. I want to believe either way. Really? This is an exciting sort of. So you don't have a deviation. preference for which one? No preference because I'm excited at either way. Okay. Because it could mean all sorts of different dominoes coming down, especially with Hank. the dominoes that handed out. <laughs> oh no, Hank's back. This is all an elaborate plan to get Hank out of jail. Hank finally had something. Oh man. Uh, we also get to see a tremendous showing uh not from uh, benjamin horn but the one you so falsely attribute to being his protege mm-hmm. richard tremaine who you know he may be running the fashion show but again with his outfit dick tremaine is the fashion show i appreciate the fact that like dick tremaine even like pr- presenting the fashion show though worse outfit than he had at the beginning uh, right, uh it had good. a plaid style still looking good going throughout the whole entire fashion show but again, regardless everyone, considering what lucy and andy are wearing uh, looking good. Yeah, they are the headrunners of the they fashion the, show. They which are was... headrunners, but they are plaid. They are very, very plaid. Mm-hmm. I do prefer Richard Tremaine's way of wording it, though. So if you'll let me indulge Go ahead. a little bit here, as Dick Tremaine once indulged. Go ahead. Our Lucy is wearing a delightful mix of warm northern comfort and southern insouciance. An elegant worsted wool jacket over a plethora of plaid with a hint of polka dot. A moonless night slim skirt for the look that always says... Hey, world, I'm here. <laughs> so good. Ah. What was that noise? Isn't it good? It, it's, it's the sound of like a dying like whistle that, you know, those little pulley whistles. It's a dying pulley whistle. Why are you a dying pulley whistle? I'm a dying pulley whistle because I don't know how to feel about him as I, well. I love Dick Tremaine's diction. Mm hmm. Diction mm-hmm. Tremaine. Uh, oh, 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 I did not get that, Khalil. Why don't you make more emphasis, put like air quotes in it, but also say the words air quote between them. Does that, will that make you feel better? Mr. Brennan is wearing a fire engine red turtleneck beneath an all wool plaid Pendleton shirt. He completes his look with his red and black buffalo checkered jodhpurs for the man who wants to make a statement while retaining that casual feel. Whether he's out mastering a task or riding the breeze of a chance meeting, that's it, Andy. Andy, you can leave. No, Andy. <laughs> Love it. Love him. Uh, especially that last line where he's riding the breeze is certainly a phrase. I don't know if Andy's ever ridden the breeze in his entire life. Just getting by. Just getting by, Andy. Regardless, there is a mood Dick Tremaine gives off that even Lucy is catching on to. That it seems that he is quite interested in the fashion element and the people who wear them in this fashion show. It is show. like the early mid-2000s hit. It's getting hot in here, so put on all your plaid. Mr. Pinkle, not to be outdone by the fashion show, brings out the real event uh, of the Pine Weasel, who he, he notes as they talk pine about... Weasel. You know, the Pine Weasel is attracted to very shiny objects. You know, honestly, like... As well as... Like, just imagine how terrified that creature must be, like, being trapped, like, in the middle of the day. This is assumedly the same day Mr. Pinkle went out and trapped this creature to bring him on the show and thought, no, this is a great idea to, like, wave around the weasel, put it in Dick Tremaine's face, being like, you oh, yeah. played a good game of wave around the weasel when you were a kid? No, I'm pretty sure that's a euphemism. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> 
Well, now I know why we shouldn't wave around any weasels, though, because uh-huh. apparently they are lethal. Uh, they, it's a terrifying freaking creature being waved around. I'm sorry. There was only one way to resolve with this. And let me tell you what it was. It was like mid nineties movie antics in which it's like, Oh, here's a weasel moving around. Oh, here's a camera. Everyone's terrified of the weasel. Oh, flip the tables. Okay. But before that, the actual bite. I love, I love Dick Tremaine's little, hello, little pilgrim, <laughs> before the thing bites him because he had cheap cologne on. And, and then they I don't think it was cheap cologne. Do you think Pinkle is an expert on these things? No, I genuinely think, okay, so there's two ways to interpret the cheap cologne, right? Right? There's the idea that Mr. Pinkle was making a dig at Dick Tremaine. Yeah. And he was like insulting his cologne just to get back at him for Dick Tremaine being kind of a jerk to him. Yeah. I prefer to think it's the latter, though, where it clearly does smell like cheap cologne, because knowing Dick Tremaine, that's exactly the kind of thing he would do. Khalil, I'm sorry, but the only reason why he was bitten is because the weasel is freaking frightened. Of course, that's definitely a large factor in this. It is the primary factor. Correct. I do not disagree with you. (laughs) But the reason it went for Richard Tremaine rather than the guy holding him, though, was because of the fragrance and the shiny buttons and the fact he's being waved in his face. (laughs) <laughs> a culmination of all three. I'll take the latter any day. Now, listeners, I want to let you all know, as we are talking about this poor, poor weasel who's an endangered species. No animals are harmed with making this podcast. There actually is. Uh, here's a fun fact, Khalil. Around the time that we're recording this podcast, they have successfully cloned a black-footed ferret. Huh. At this time, in which was part of an endangered species. Now, here's my question. Fun, quest- depending on your definition. Fun, depending on your definition. Now, if Benjamin Horn had the option of instead of investing in this little show uh, presentation and instead chose the cloning option. Which uh, was readily available in the year 1990. <laughs> yes. Which one would he choose? Um, probably this one. Mm-hmm. Probably not the cloning. <laughs> Generally, cloning would have been seen as a very dystopian, like horrifying idea ethically. Mm-hmm. Because this was before, like, the sheep cloning and the weird, like, spider sheep and all that sort of stuff that mm-hmm. happened later. Uh, this was before a lot of those breakthroughs that on their own later came with controversy. So if Ben is pure, you'd want to avoid that shameful ethical stance. <laughs> but if he's impure, cloning isn't going to help him get the Ghostwood property back. So either if you believe way, that is the stance. Either way, he has no reason to support the cloning. I still appreciate that the world has reflected our Twin Peaks viewing in some way, shape, and form. Uh, sure, sure, man. Save the weasels. Cloning or Ghostwood-wise? Um, I don't know if I stand by that or not. I'm not ready to commit on the cloning situation right now, to be honest. One thing John Justice Wheeler is willing to commit to, though, is catching Audrey in his arms. Now, granted, he didn't really sweep her off her feet. She more was, you know, falling off the stage in a panic in the midst of the weasel-induced flurry. It but looks, It looks like this is the second instance where Audrey has fallen into Jack's. Well, this time it ended a little bit more romantically. <laughs> With a kiss. We didn't end it yet. With a kiss. We we ended this episode on that kiss. Yes. But we didn't end this relationship on that. Not necessarily, no. I, I just, I'm saying the initial falling into said Jack. Khalil, we have five episodes until we get into Jack's horrible heroin You think she's going to remain in Jack's arms in that exact situation? Well, you know what goes in arms? Heroin. And the real heroine <laughs> of the night was the screaming lady at the microphone. I really enjoy that the last scene we get of the situation with the weasel is this lady just standing in front of the microphone screaming. I'm not going to trust Jack, and that screaming lady is... Maybe that's the illusion, Khalil. Maybe that is. What do you mean? She is alluding to the panic that we will one day experience between Ah, that romance. Foreshadowing. (laughs) 
sure. she's been struck by, she's been grabbed by a smooth criminal. I really wish I could transition us to Annie right now because that would be a great tie-in. But I, I can't, I can't follow up on that until I get your thoughts on the actual situation here. So you kind of made fun of it as being this sort of over-the-top kind of corny 90s scene. Yeah. Did you like or dislike this scene? It's the most out-of-place thing in this episode, to say the least. Um, It was okay. I was sitting in my chair along for the ride, but nothing big. Mm-hmm. Like, again, it's like this. My biggest thought in my head is this this poor animal. I know the shots, it's Frankenbited in a way in which, like, clearly the weasel was not directly harmed or anything like that, and it wasn't running around while everyone was panicking. Yeah. But at the same time, in the fiction, poor weasel. So your primary concern was the fictional state of the fictional weasel, yes. not, the, not the comedy. Yes, believe it or not, I care about the weasel. The fictional weasel. Oh, so if you can care about a person and their emotional turmoil <laughs> in a story, why can I not have I, compassion I for fictional That's weasels? fine, whatever. <laughs> I actually really enjoy that scene. I, I really enjoy the over-the-top comedy of it. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's good to have those moments of levity in an otherwise pretty serious episode. Man, I'll take my levity in small chunks rather than a big burst. I, I like that they went all for it. Mm-hmm. And the fact that one rogue weasel could cause that much panic among people mm-hmm. really, really says something about the nature of Twin Peaks and its citizens. Yeah. Instead, instead of Nadine getting upset about all the noise going on downstairs and her busting into the say no to Ghostwood room and flipping the tables and attacking all the people around, it might have had a different impact. So truly, it's it's not save the pine weasel, it's save us from the pine weasel. <laughs> who is the predator and who is the prey now? Mm-hmm. It is like a game of chess, one could say. And I have said this. One can say that. There is a game of chess also happening right now in Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. Happening on several, several boards, according to Pete Martell's strategies. Uh, we get the scene of Wyndham Earl viewing the move that has been made. We see him wheezing and twirling a flower, talking to Leo Johnson, presumably early in the morning. And Wyndham Earl is waxing poetic. He says, you can't appreciate how tonic country life is until you're out there living it. And, you know, he goes on to say that even if you'd lived in the country before and you try to remember what it was like, the mental image is always imperfect. I think that's that's just true with a lot of matters that, like, a memory can only be an imperfect recreation. Mm-hmm. You can only experience it one way or another. Though, we will get a future line from quote-unquote Wyndham Earl, which from his precision is that you can't appreciate small towns enough until you lived in a big city. Mm-hmm. But whatever kind of peace of mind Wyndham Earl claims he found while in nature and living in this sort of peaceful country life immediately gets flushed down the drain as soon as he actually reads the newspaper because he sees the move. Or as he calls it, you know, this isn't a move. This is a trick. No, he has some great insight. He just simply moves it and he just gets openly frustrated. And he knows suddenly that it's going to be a stalemate. He's playing a stalemate game. Cooper doesn't know the meaning of stalemate. He's getting help. I cannot tolerate people who do not play by the rules. People who shirk the standards. He starts beating Leo with the flute. I mean, he is actively playing the game, doing like the correct moves when I've already questioned on how certain moves could even be made in the first place. So where are the rules allowed? I think the idea is that he's upset that Cooper is not playing to win. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the past, whenever Cooper and Wyndham Earl played, you know, every day on the force, they played a game of chess. Mm -hmm. It seems like Cooper always played to win. Yeah, he wants not playing to win right now. He wanted Cooper to put his heart into it, but it's not the way that he wanted Cooper to put his heart into it. Right. And again, metaphorically, going back to the idea of Cooper being indecisive, he 
He's playing for a stalemate, not for a victory. I mean, thus mm. incurring more of Windermere's ire. <laughs> Many people I mean, are going to regret this. There's a position someone can argue where he is putting his heart into it in a different way. He wants to limit the amount of lives lost. Right. I'm not saying possible. he's not. I'm just saying from Windermere's perspective, mm -hmm. he's not playing the game faithfully and dedicatedly. Mm -hmm. He is playing this side game of tactics to stall. But luckily he's not trying to actually win the game of chess. Yeah, but luckily he has good old Leo to try to help him in his own calm state. Like he gives him a little pipe and he gives him like his proper tools to get started on his day. So at least Windemerl has a little bit of help around to kind of stir away his more angry tendencies, wouldn't you say? Uh, I would say that Leo is experiencing the brunt of those angry tendencies. Sure. <laughs> He's got an outlet for those tendencies. I'm sure he'll be fine. Leo or Windermerl? Sure. <laughs> Question is, will Pete be fine? No. Pete, who is popping his head up like one of those uh, whack-a-mole, the moles, up from all the different boards. Also, there's a jar of honey on the table. What was with that? No, there are multiple, like open containers of honey, like little Why? honey bears all over the place. Is that a secret I mean, chess tactic? I mean, we do see it like even on the boards where he's not in the same room, like when Cooper is talking to both Major Briggs and the log lady, you can see another open honey thing. I think he just likes his like drinks with honey. Hmm. Or he's just eating honey. Yep. Which mean, is fine, you know, if you want to do that. Sugar can be a stimulant. Pete is a sweet guy. He is a very sweet man trying to help out the... <laughs> and and I wasn't sure at first, you know, how much he really knew about the stakes here. At first, Pete just gets signed up, but Pete does seem very cognizant of the stakes here because when he tells Cooper that the best he can really do would still result in losing a few pieces, he, he does clarify and say that means six people would die. Mm -hmm. So Pete Martell knows what's at stake here, uh, which I think is interesting mm -hmm. that he was let in on this information. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, suppose he has to be to play to his best. Absolutely. He but, has to know the stakes, but this might be very poor for Pete's health. Well, and it might also be a little bit off the code of what Truman as an officer, and more importantly, what Cooper as an FBI agent are allowed to do. And in truth, like Truman has no jurisdiction at the yeah, moment. And there's also Cooper in which his jurisdiction and choices are always a little different. Sure. But hey, at the very least, he's getting some moves down he's trying to limit the amount of moves for stalemates looking through every stalemate that he could find mm -hmm. throughout uh, likely his books and in the meantime he's also teaching both andy and lucy how to play chess and it seems that andy's not really taking it too well hey andy plays about as well as i do all the knights have to do the little hooky thing i mean i was the one who literally last episode the episode before was talking about the horse doing the l thing and yeah i yeah I, you got it goes you, out for andy you can you can defeat andy you know hey, that honestly, the horse I does think it'd be the a l. very close match between me and andy i believe in you i believe in andy being about as good as me to be honest <laughs> well and speaking of confidence cooper is convinced that they are still on the right path that even if a few pawns end up getting lost in the game, this is going to be the right decision. He says that Wyndham Earl's genius carries with it the vice of impatience. He doesn't want pawns. He wants royalty. Protect those, especially the queen. So to Cooper's mind, six pawns does not necessarily mean six people dying. And if anything, this strategy is going to infuriate Wyndham Earl and make him impatient. And that's going to be a good thing for them. Uh, I don't know how that line of reasoning works, right? Yeah. That seems a little dangerous when there are potentially lives at stake. Yeah, after all, like, it seems that Windermerl is certainly making his moves, but we'll be seeing more of that later. In the meantime, Pete's our best bet. Uh, I'm not trusting Cooper more on that. I'm trusting Pete. Fair enough. And speaking of making moves, Annie Blackburn is making a move to Twin Peaks. 
Right, no, we actually see Annie arrive, and... How's she doing? Is Annie okay? I don't know. Like, so she... her her acting is a little bit off-putting from my Really? Opinion. Go on. It, it's, it seems that she's very direct and to the point, mm-hmm. and I'm not seeing... Especially being around people like Norma and being around Shelly, it seems that she's just very blunt. Yeah? Yeah. Is that a bad thing? I mean... It's not really something that gives many impressions, so I can't really tell you if it's good or bad yet. Okay. So she shows up at the Double R Diner, hugs her sister, Norma. Mm-hmm. And Norma says that, you know, referring to Shelly, that she's told her everything about her. And Annie responds immediately with, like, everything? And Norma says, well, Shelly's like family. Which, you know, again, <laughs> talking of that blunt honesty, Annie's like, well, that doesn't really have a positive point of reference with our family concern. Yeah. Which, I mean, we've met... We've met the mom. We've met the mom. Met is she still dating the dad or is he I just... don't know what happened to Ernie Niles. I don't know what happened to Vivian. But Ernie Niles is just a non-entity I anymore. think I'm okay not knowing about those two. <laughs> they could just fade away into that whole pit in the middle of Twin Peaks where the, <laughs> the characters go and they're not needed. I, I like Ernie a lot more than Vivian as a character, but at the same time, I, I recognize that it was... it was, nor, it was Like, imagine if Ernie Niles was still a plot element. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's needed. I think, I think he's that okay he would have helped out with Mr. Pinkle as well. Yes, as actually, that was my first thought as Dick well. Dick I don't know with what he would have done there, but he would have been there for sure. So anyway, going back to the family situation, it seems like Vivian isn't the only questionable member of the family by that line. That uh, potentially some of the pain that Annie's had to face might be family related. Possibly. Maybe. Uh, she also mentioned having come back from the convent that she's not used to really handling money. Because the closest thing they had in the convent was bingo chips. I mean, that's sad. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, what good is currency going to be if you're a nun? <laughs> what do you need money for? Sure, on one end, but on the second end, I don't know, like, the currency transfer. What do you buy with bingo chips? Do you get an extra bit of bread? I'm sure you barter with other nuns at the convent. I mean, I don't want to really imagine, like, a bunch of nuns gambling and bartering with one another for their bingo chips. I mean, I think it's kind of entertaining, to be honest. <laughs> I'm, I'm all in favor of it. So, while this double R scene is happening, we get Norma talking to Shelly about the upcoming Miss Twin Peaks pageant. Ooh. And I and I do like the way that Norma conveys her suggestion by not saying a single word, but just kind of like pointing at the paper and kind of like looking yeah. at Shelly. Yeah. And then Shelly's like, connection. oh, come on. You don't really mean like me do this. Yeah. And uh, Shelly, again, big fan of Shelly. The character, the, act, the acting from Madkin, great. She, Love it. She is getting a very nice chance to shine because when she gets to really stand up and just like pretend like the idea of Miss Twin Peaks being like... She gets to be the announcer and then she, she gets to answer her question. Yeah, she's like, I was like, so how would you go about world peace? It's like, well, I would take all the leaders and give them all a chance to hold hands because you can't make a fist when you're holding a hand. I really, really enjoy the scenes with Shelly and Norma. I will. I not- think it does so much for both of their characters. I think so too. I think that they do very well with one another. And this was the first impression where I was thinking to myself, after I finish Twin Peaks, I will permit myself to look more into this actress Mm -hmm. because she does have an energy to herself that I find utterly fascinating and entertaining. I think she's been given so little range for her character in the show. Mm -hmm. She's been basically the abused girlfriend of Leo and then the neglected girlfriend of Bobby and that's about the extent of it. She gets yeah. to be scared and then occasionally sexy. Now she gets and to that's be that's about it. And now she actually gets to have fun. Yeah, it's it's almost as if, like, whenever you don't put people in very bad relationships, mm. uh, we actually can see the individual shine. Maybe. Speaking of individuals shining, Wyndham Earl is wearing a biker outfit. 
best bestest guys he's had so far. Uh, uh, he even has this like nice little spider tattoo. I wouldn't under his suspect him at all. <laughs> nope, nope. He looks like the traditional man who rides a motorcycle and listens to like heavy metal albums, and uh, he chooses tobacco. And he, he chooses uh, tobacco. Yep. He he ordered. Oh, choose his. Do you mean choose his like chewing tobacco? Yes. I heard chooses like he, 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 he also makes chooses. the choice. He I makes the he choice. Would. Both yeah. work. Both work. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Makes sense. And he orders a burger and leaves and then he it immediately there. lays it thick on Shelly, where it's like you're very pretty. I Whoa. think I think you should enter the competition. <laughs> very <laughs> creepy. Very creepy vibes. Here's the number for the competition. Here's your dress. Uh, and here's a pre-written script for you to say at the competition. I think you really do need it. It's your soul, really. Your insides. Your insides are beautiful. They're absolutely beautiful. Your intestines. Mm-hmm. I would love to see your intestines. <laughs> and there's a point in which he, after his speech, which more or less were the words that we just spoke out loud uh, as Shelley walks away, the camera pans because guess what? Guess what Windaburl sees? Cooper. Cooper walks in to sit down and get himself a nice little treat for himself, you know, uh, get himself some nice coffee. When he gets to see Annie, because Annie, you know, doesn't look like anyone Cooper has ever seen before. Nope, no no relation to anyone whose name rhymes with marrow mine. Um, Do you think she looks like her? I think, yeah. From, like, what we barely see with the frizzy, like, longer, like, almost auburn, like, reddish, brownish hair. Okay. I think that that's what he somewhat sees as we kind of like get more of a thick layer of Carolyn constantly. Okay, I'm uh, not sure I necessarily agree with the appearance similarity, but mm-hmm. it is interesting to hear that perspective. Yeah, no, I think that that is the case. And he's well, look- something is definitely making him fixate on her. Yeah, and he is very fascinated. He is engaged. He wants some coffee. She said she made it a little bit too strong, and he's like, "It's perfect. Did you made it just right?" Okay, why are it's- you doing that voice for Cooper now? Ooh, it carried boy, over from the coffee. biker a little bit. Because guess what? I believe they're a little bit of the same person, but that's just my little dear okay, right here. Okay, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he. He sees her little bit of wrist right there and that little, like, burn, maybe? You know, usually the way you word things is like, you know, how do you know I'm not Batman? It's like, well, have you ever seen me and Batman in the same room together? The thing is, we did and did not see Wyndham yeah, Earl and Cooper in the Wyndham same room. Yeah, because Earl looks over They were in the Cooper, same room, but and we they, didn't see them next to each other. Yeah, Cooper just looks at the spot. All the burger, all the fries. He doesn't even, like, take the plate. He just left that perfectly good-looking burger. You don't take the plate out of the diner. It's not your plate. If you're running out of that with, like, not much care as, like, a police officer that you are engaged with a deep chest thing in, and you are willing to murder people, I think the least of your crimes is stealing the food that you ordered. I'm just saying, Wyndham Earl has certain rules he plays by. Maybe that's one of them. Remember, his mind's like a diamond, okay? Uh-huh. Never forget. Yep, it, it, it has a very strict hardness, but it is also brittle and fragile. Correct? Anyway, going back to the conversation that Cooper had with Annie, uh, you know, he, he asks her, you know, if she's coming to stay for a while, and Annie says, I might be here a while. And Cooper says, it happened to me. And she's like, well, it looks like it's grown on you. He says, it has a way of doing that. So Cooper uh, and Annie have a very quick, rapid conversation in which Annie ascertains very quickly from Cooper that, yeah, this guy's been drawn in like a Venus flytrap, he's been swallowed by Twin Peaks. I mean, it hasn't, like, Twin Peaks already been that allure? Has he not been the fly that has gone slowly down the shaft of the Venus flytrap for so long mm-hmm. at this point where he has been burned, diluted into something new? Speaking of burned, we do see, as the coffee's being poured, a line on Annie's left wrist. Oh, yeah, I mentioned that. Did you? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm mentioning it again. Cool. What do you think that is? It is a burn mark. Correct. Probably. I mean... 
It looks like one, right? Yes. Uh, any particular indications of what that might represent? Maybe it's Carolyn back from the dead. No. Uh, Do you actually think that, or are you just saying it now so you can later say I told you so? I... <laughs> like, what's your plan here? What's your what's There's your long no, con here? I, I don't. <laughs> I mean, the last sort of. I don't think that we've heard anything about wrists with Carolyn, so that would just be me being super crazy. No, the last thing that we really saw with wrists was with Ronette and Laura when they were tied up. So I don't think yeah. that there's any sort of sexual connection. Y- usually, there. I would associate wrists with like self harm, but it didn't look like a self harm scar. No, it's I, it looked either like unintentional or something that was just placed there after an incident, which we don't have enough information mm-hmm. on. Apparently, like Annie ran into some issues, and now she is seeing Norma. We'll likely learn more about that situation, but there's just not enough information out there at the moment. So, what did you think of Annie upon first impressions? We got John Justice Wheeler last episode. We got Annie this one. Uh, what do you think of Annie? Annie is being outshone by Norma and Shelly. Shelly. Okay. So, but but that's just because likely not only am I used to their performances for now, but again, we're seeing some very standout moments. Meanwhile, Annie is like, okay, I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Hey, I'm going to get you coffee. Yeah? Yeah. See, here's the thing. There's there's this like Gilmore Girls side of me, right? Every, every person has a Gilmore Girls every, side of them, yep. right? I don't know what's... Gilmore Girls is fully, but I do I know the concept. I think it's funnier if I don't explain it. Okay. So there's the Gilmore Girls part of me, right, that really enjoys the the rapid, blunt dialogue that Annie delivers. Mm-hmm. She feels like a Gilmore Girls character, just with more trauma. Mm-hmm. I haven't got that far into Gilmore Girls. I watched, like, the first six episodes and then stopped it. So maybe there's other characters who have just as much <laughs> convent-related trauma. But Annie kind of reminds me of that, and I really like that sort of terse, blunt commentary. That's fine. I just prefer, like, whenever I have a bluntness that I need. I want it as strong as the coffee that she serves. Fair so enough. That's so you want her to like, like punch people in the face. I want like, I want verbal bashing. Man. You want like Toad to come in and she's like, you're ugly. And then just doesn't help him. <laughs> no, it wouldn't be like, he's ugly. Like that. You gotta be more creative like that. Be Rosenfeld there. Khalil. Ooh, you're uglier than the tuna melt in the fridge. That's been there. No, no, no. Since I went to the convent. Khalil precision is key. Toad walks in and it's like, huh? Well, I'm glad you have a name that fits you. You know, I just have a pure heart. It's hard for me to insult people. As you went into this weird, elaborate (laughs) labyrinth of an insult. Yeah, because I find it so difficult. I have to go through all those hoops to make an insult. You are are way too aggressive. Toad is a sweetheart. You remind me a lot of Wyndham Earl. Thank you. The one who would go to the Donna Hayward household. And another ha- clever disguise. Yeah, honestly, that was more clever. I w- it was I wouldn't better. Have, I would not have caught on if it wasn't for the fact that the uh, hair from the eyebrows and the mustache mm-hmm. uh, seemed dyed. If it wasn't for that, I was thinking to myself, is that Earl and or is I, that And I do character? think that the Blu-rays and the kind of restorations make it obvious. I think that if it had been watched originally in the, like the 1990s, it would have been harder to tell. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Except for like the diner. Except for the diner, that would have been obvious. I, I don't think that there's any no, sort of decision. But, but the Dr. Gerald Craig costume, mm-hmm. that would have been convincing. So mm-hmm. this quote-unquote Dr. Gerald Craig comes in, asks if Bill and Eileen are there. Donna says, nope, but lets him in. What 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 happens if it was like, yes? It's like, oh, yeah. leave this gift, let's go, goodbye. Yeah, that's honestly probably what it would have been, right? <laughs> it, it could, he must have really been planning this. I, don't, I imagine he was like dressed as an owl in their tree with binoculars stalking mm. out when they would leave and then waited for them to leave. When the world master of disguise. I, I honestly believe he would have. He would dress as an owl in a tree. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's, you know, he's talking 
in the character of Dr. Gerald Craig, and he he makes it sound as though he and Doc Hayward go way back. And, you know, he says, it seems like Will has found himself a little piece of heaven here. And then in typical, you know, Winnemurl fashion, he gets really creepy when he asks Donna if her sisters are as beautiful as she is. No, isn't to that To which sweet? Donna doesn't respond with the obvious answer of, uh, my sisters are literal children, you creep. You know, which she probably should have just responded. Probably. Also, I'm a literal high schooler, you creep. But, you know. <laughs> but no, uh, she's very accommodating for a guest, you know, like saying, like, hey, do you want a pop or something? As she's like having a pop in a sandwich. She drinks her uh, Coca-Colas with a straw. Yeah, that that's a classic way of drinking a Coca-Cola bottle. It's a subpar way to drink, and it's a subpar soda. You know, some people like the aeration from a straw, okay? You know, some people like that splash us. of flavor, but unfortunately, no, Khalil. You have to judge people by their drinking habits. If Coca-Cola wants to sponsor us, I love Coca-Cola. If they don't want to sponsor us, it's like a C-tier soda at best. So if there are any soda brands out there that aren't fully insulted by how Khalil treats his sponsorships, we will gladly accept and listen to your persuasive deals by emailing us at snakeeyedreams at gmail.com or going to our Twitter page with snakeeyedreams1, the numeral one. Uh, Wild Bills had your soda recently. Hit us up. That's pretty good stuff. <laughs> Got some really good, good soda. Good soda. Um, and uh, speaking of good things, uh, Wynn Merle's talking to Donna about high school, you know, and how he knows it's tough, but he tells her, you know, it's all going to work out. For right now, just enjoy it in all of its absurdity. Which I enjoy that sentiment. Yeah, I mean, I think it works on, like, the literal level about school, but it also kind of works for, like, almost like Twin Peaks as, like, a, a meta-commentary where it's just like, hey, you know, a lot of times Twin Peaks is not going to make a lot of sense. Right now, just enjoy it in all of its absurdity. Uh, there's also the sense of anytime Wyndham Earl gives life advice, you look at it through squinty eyes, kind of like the squinty eyes that the professor's looking at me with right now. There is, he, he, hmm. It's the gift that he gives. It's the gift that he gives. The gift that, that keeps on giving. That gives me a headache. It gives me a migraine. It frustrates me because it's either confirming or denying me. I cannot tell. Well, please explain. So eventually we do get, well, well, eventually we'll get to a point where the gift is given probably to Doc Hayward. But at this time, the nice little guest is like, here, give this to your father, but please do not open it. Don't you dare. Mm-mm-mm. And yeah, eventually that gift is given. Apparently the phone number is to a cemetery and the piece that is given. That's because Gerald Craig is died. dead. He was a dead man. He was so a dead roommate that died in a river as Doc, Doc Hayward. Hayward specifically tried to rescue him. Yeah. He was his roommate. Very good detail work there. Yeah, Wyndham Earl did his research. Wyndham Earl did his research or he spoke with the owls that did the research for him. Anyway, <laughs> and it was a number four cemetery and it was a... Black knight piece with a knight heading towards a bishop sta- space. And mm, mm, why mm, does that bother uh, you so much? It's the black piece with a movement marker to another position, but we've been playing on black this whole time. Why is Wyndham Earl deciding where our knight should go? Oh, I don't know. I don't know if it's just a suggestion from his insult from before, or it's because we are either playing chess, we're not playing chess, or we are somehow working on that duality sense of Earl and Cooper. How these pieces will move, how we will behave, I couldn't tell you whatsoever, Khalil. Honestly, could you explain it again for the layman? How is this move, like, absurd? I, I actually don't understand. It's tied together with a black piece. Yes. Knight to bis- uh, bishop space. That which, piece was a knight, right? That piece was a knight, a black knight. Why would Wyndham Earl 
be moving Cooper's pieces. We have seen them play on black actively, so why would the black knight be moving for him? And here's me actively showing him Tick, tick, there we go, there the pieces go, time travel. Khalil, he is playing black and he's asking for a black piece to move to another space. Okay, yeah, Um, you have shown me. Mm -hmm. I have seen what you mentioned. Mm -hmm. for, for listeners who haven't seen this, when he looks at the newspaper, when he sees the piece, he fixes the board to accommodate Cooper's piece. Windermerl does move the black. At the last indicates... episode, Pete did move inside the black spaces. And the episode before that, I correctly assessed that he was playing on the black side. So I'm sorry, Khalil. Unfortunately, this piece frustrates me because it's either I am insanely right or there is nonsense going on and we're in a wonderland of chess. We are Alice going through the chaos of this world. What do you have to say, Khalil? Uh, I would say that that would make Ben Horn the Cheshire Cat, <laughs> who appears, who appears in the Hayward household in a shadowy form at the doorway. I honestly, I will be l l running down from my pure emotion that is being thrown yeah. cast aside. Yes. I couldn't tell initially it was Ben at first. That's okay. Like, it was Ben-shaped. I looked at it, it was Ben hair, Ben face shape, but I couldn't have the connection because I'm so used to, like, spectacled Ben, so I suppose, mm. like, just seeing his side profile from that angle was just okay. different for me. I, to me, I, w I would know Ben anywhere. I know Ben like the back of my hand. Uh, Khalil, are you offering yourself to get a Ben tattoo on the back of your hand? If I was gonna tattoo any Twin Peaks character, Ben would be in the running. Mm-hmm. On the back of your hand, though. Yeah. Yeah. Ben on one hand, Jerry on the other. Oh, no. Yeah, give him the old Ben and Jerry routine. <laughs> hey, pop, 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 pop. Oh, no. I... <laughs> Anyway, um, so yeah, Ben, speaking of hands, uh, Ben grabs Eileen's hand and holds it within his own. And he goes on his knees to whisper something to her while she is obviously in her wheelchair. And we kind of have this eerie music playing in the background that's the same sort of track that would play at One-Eyed Jacks as Donna is watching from the stairs. Eileen, do you want to save the Pine Weasel? I'm accepting donations. Just come to the event we're having this evening. Eileen, did you know you could save 15% or more on your car insurance? By switching to Tim Pinkle. No. No <laughs> amount of savings is worth investing in that man. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah. Returning to your anguish. I just want to make sure we get the Ben Horn thing addressed. Uh, I feel like we... I don't know. I don't have much commentary on it because it's so little information. You can't guess anything, can you? Why would Ben Horn go to Eileen Hayward? Eileen Hayward, no one's gone to her in several, several episodes. Nope. So what is, why do you think Ben's here? I mean, like, I'm not even sure what we can speculate. There is something that Ben is doing that... I have no context for because I don't think that we've really even dealt with like Doc Hayward with Ben or like nope. anyone of the Haywards with Ben. Not really. So the firmest connection is no connection at all. Beautiful. So let's just let's just put a little little uh, little dog-eared page on that one. Mm -hmm. Everyone loves their pages being dog-eared. I mean, I use like little sticky notes. Okay, well we're not doing that. We're dog-earing them. Why would you ruin the integrity <laughs> of the page? And then let's go back to your anguish. So. Again, I can't really specify whether you're right or wrong, but you do kind of have a, an interesting argument with the chess pieces here. So is there anything more, I guess, you wanted to say or ask or articulate in anguish over the whole chess situation before we move on to our next topic? I don't want to just abandon it if you still are feeling a way about it. I don't know where my emotions will go, but through the storm, I hope there is no I, because I am personally enjoying what you enjoy the mystery the mystery and the emotions that arise from it mm. 
Let's assume that you're right, that Cooper and Wyndham Earl are in some way two sides of the same coin. Is that an apt way of wording what you're suggesting? That phrase has been worn down heavily in my mind. Okay, but they are no, two it sides is, of the same it, pancake. It fits, it fits, it fits. Two sides of the same pancake. It is delicious. So if they are indeed one pancake. <laughs> no, finish your statement. <laughs> if they are indeed one pancake. Are their eggs sunny side up or not? <laughs> is this a smiley face pancake or is this a frowny face pancake? If they are having some eggs sunny side up, they have to choose both the salt and the pepper. So what I'm trying to say here before I get <laughs> lost in my jokes, um, what's the end game? Let's suppose you're right and there's that connection. Has there always been that connection? Where does this go moving forward? We only got a few episodes left. If it turns out they are in some way deeply connected, how does this work with like Leo? How does this work with Pete and the chess game? What do you think this affects? That's a small question, I know. This will have to affect the things that Cooper will have to face and accept going forward. Not only with Pete's just bluntness on how he will end up losing pieces, but also what Cooper is willing to do and not do in the heat of moments. He, To say the least, Cooper is certainly a pessimist passionate person, but very empathetic. I think that as far as Wyndham Earl goes, he doesn't fully lack empathy, but he's not guided by it. So uh, there are going to, there can be some very choice points and sacrifices made, whether Cooper likes it or not, and whether Cooper accepts it or not, like whether or not he has accepted what has happened to Carolyn. So when you say they're the same pancake, right? Are you saying this in the sense of like your Maddie Laura theory or like, to what extent are they connected exactly? To what extent? I think that the way that they are connected is the closest example that I can give from the information that I have now would be a potential Bob and Leland connection, mm. if not maybe even a little closer than that. Ooh. So which one's the parasite and which one's the man? Uh, that actually is something I've been mulling over a little bit myself. Okay. Interesting. I, I guess we'll, we'll keep that on the simmering in the background. Hopefully the pancake doesn't burn. Oh, God. Uh, speaking of burning, someone seems to be burning emotionally right now, uh, receiving the burn. Truman, not having a good day. Not having a very good day. We open up, as you mentioned, a very iconic oh, opening series of shots. Yes. Yes, please. Move forward. So we had the opening shot of Harry Truman's face with some romantic jazz playing in the background. He's rotating the glass of his alcoholic beverage. An we empty glass at the moment. An empty glass at the moment. And we see that sort of reflection on the wood. Mm -hmm. as, the light is slightly twinkling mm -hmm. off the glass. As memories are fading in and out of Josie. Yes, and there's this point where Hawk brings Truman some food and says that Norma made it very special for him, like a nice little special order. Mm -hmm. And this whole time while this conversation is going on, the light is shining down on that Norma meal. Mm -hmm. which he says he might have later. He might have later. The light is still shining in the same position when Cooper comes around, so I imagine it's either the sun has stayed in the same position awaiting his response, mm -hmm. or Cooper also has arrived five minutes later, but we'll get there. I think the sun ate his food. The sun has the devoured sun food. The sun burned up Norma's special food. Trying to, like, dry it out so the little particles can fly back up to the sun itself so it may consume the delicious meal that Norma has made. It's special, so even the sun desires it. 
And and Sherman's not very concerned about his his temporary absence. He says, you know, you and Cooper can handle it. He just says a, it's a hawk. Yeah, it's just a small it's town. Pretty simple town. Sim- simple town. Used to be. I guess the world's just caught up with us. Really, it, which it, it's a fun perspective because he is dealing with a lot of grief. But let's face it, with all the sort of plots going on in the background for years and mm-hmm. years and years. Twin Peaks was never a simple no. town. And despite what narrative we might occasionally be peddled, I mean, between the Renaults and the Horns and the Martells and the Packards and the Eckerts having their lingering effects, mm-hmm. we know that wasn't the case. And, and in that sense, Laura Palmer becomes the perfect metaphor, right? Yeah. Someone who everyone thinks is like this high school sweetheart, right? This sort of um, perfect ideal of purity, uh, you know, the, the girl next door who... <laughs> Uh, we know has a much darker side door mm-hmm. and has been going through darkness that people do not realize. Yes. And Laura is always on that fine edge of victim and victimizer. And, you know, as we continue to dive into Laura more, when we get to the secret die of Laura Palmer and uh, fire walk with me coming up very soon, uh, very excited for those two. Um, we can already see though, that Laura like twin peaks appears as one thing, but maybe, in fact, many, many other things. And despite the sort of idea that they've been peddling that, you know, Twin Peaks is somehow different, even Cooper himself believing that enough to try to stake out some property here, it does seem like Truman's biting into a lie, that Twin Peaks was never like that. The world didn't catch up to it. You're just kind of seeing it for what it was before. You lifted up the rock and you saw the bugs underneath. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a point where, like, he has to come to some ex- acceptance that things aren't so simple. And I gotta say, like, with the Bookhouse Boys, and it seems that Truman is spending some time at the Bookhouse. Mm-hmm. What is the Bookhouse? Before we get to that, <laughs> I was gonna mention when Hawk leaves, he does the Bookhouse Boy salute, which could just be a normal thing, but it also makes me think that's, like, almost his reply to Truman's claim that the world caught up to us. He does the Bookhouse Boy salute, which, if you remember back to when the Bookhouse Boys were first introduced... The point of the Bookhouse Boys is to stop the darkness of the woods from infecting the town. Mm-hmm. So when he does the Bookhouse Boys salute, I almost think, and this is, I, I don't know if it's intentional, but I almost think it's Hawk reminding Truman that darkness has always been there, and that's kind of their job to keep it at bay. Mm-hmm. And that whether they just faltered recently or whether darkness had seeped in and infected long before they realized the cut had been there, mm-hmm. um, that there has been something festering that got out from the woods almost. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I thought that was really interesting that he doesn't say anything to Truman, but he does the Bookhouse Boys salute. Back to your question, are the Bookhouse Boys, I don't know, No, man. not what are the Bookhouse Boys. What is the Bookhouse? Because there's straight up a bed there. There's a bunch of books. I don't know if beds and libraries go together. Is it just I another mystery? Say, I can't say too much how much you learn about because that spoils. Uh. I will just say that I've always wished they had gone more into it in season two. Mm-hmm. And I've said that before regarding Hank. Mm-hmm. And I continue to feel that way. Okay. I think it's an interesting element that was underutilized in season two. I can't say much beyond that because mm-hmm. that does get into spoilers. Even saying something doesn't exist. Well, for now, I will imagine that for some reason, Truman is allowed to stay at this library bed place, this hotel of books. Mm-hmm. And yeah, um, I hope he's going to be okay. In fact, does Truman have a house? Or is this where he stays? Is this Truman's home? We've never home? seen Truman's home. We've, no. never, we've never seen where the sheriff Maybe lives. this is his home. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. More mysterious, though, than Truman's home address is the details regarding Josie's death. Uh, Doc Hayward could not determine a cause of death. And not only that, her body only weighed 65 pounds. Yeah, that's a lot. Like, this This was a discussion that both Cooper and Hawk were having later, by the mm-hmm. way, right? 
uh, while they're looking through all the reports that are going through because there's a lot to kind of dig on Eckerd and Josie. Sure. It would seem. It, oh, God. So what do you think happened? Well. Why is she only 65 pounds? Well, for one, um, uh, but for another, uh. I mean, the way it's always stood out to me is that idea that it's not all of Josie. That, like, in, in a sense, what's left was a husk. And that more of Josie is in that drawer pole. Khalil, did Wyndham Earl take the intestines in his disguise or not? Because <laughs> no matter what, even if like this is the metaphor of like there's less of Josie there, there has to be some physical mass well, to know her the body. Scientific term soul weight. Oh, you mean like whenever like our entire you know, husk kind of soul? like release their bowels and then like all the air leaves her body. Like, yeah, soul weight. Yeah, I don't think that that would take that much weight. Either that or I am concerned for Josie's general health that either she had that much in her bowels and in her lungs or she didn't have much to begin with. Yeah, I think if you try to approach it from a scientific sense, it doesn't make much sense because, like, the question is what's weighing less or what was taken out? Because for someone to weigh that much less, you'd imagine they'd be missing something. Right? Like, you imagine when they do the autopsy, they'd be like, huh, she's missing half her internal organs. <laughs> oh, it seems from weighing half of a person here. So, so, since that wasn't explained, I think we have to look at it more as a metaphysical, sort of spiritual sense, because nothing was, like, missing from the body. Oh, come on. Like, I, I prefer, like, the secret, because remember, Ben Horn was talking to Eileen. Maybe they have some sort of black market connections, mm. and Doc has secretly, like, been stuffing the organs into, like, a little freezer bag. He's like, I have no clue how she died, but these organs, they're perfectly fine. <laughs> I gotta fund my house somehow, and there's not many people inside of Twin Oof. Peaks out of the 51,000 population to to keep up my lavish lifestyle. Anyway, anyway, we, all, we also like get like an elaborate amount of information presented. Mm -hmm. It seems that Cooper has somehow got his hands on Interpol reports. Yeah, the and, dossier on her. Yeah, and uh, it's autographed. There's mm -hmm. like three autographs on the I Interpol guess signatures, report. Signatures like verifying the contents from whoever compiled it. I I imagine that. I didn't realize that that would just be like on the front face because it looks like an autographed script more than it is mm. like. Well, probably just a placeholder they put on there. Well, I don't know. Like you'd expect like there's a stamp of approval or anything like that. Just like here it is. Here's official. Here's the ink. Mm -hmm. Here's like our little stamp or here's how we uh, present ourselves. Not being like, okay, let's see. Um, to Cooper with love, <laughs> the director of Interpol. <laughs> Fair enough. And, and Cooper relays these facts to Truman very, very flatly, almost coldly, one could argue. Mm -hmm. you know, he says Josie, in addition to obviously being the cause of Eckert's death, the attempt at Andrew Packard, and Jonathan's death, uh, Josie was also wanted for a variety of felonies back in Hong Kong and had two prostitution arrests. Mm -hmm. And that last comment kind of lingers with, with Truman for a while. And Cooper says, you know, eventually... It'll help to know that she's a hardened criminal, where Truman begins at that point to say, get out of here. Get out of here. Get out of here! Go! Just, like, shouts it at him. Yep, Crazy Truman has been a very fun performance, to say the least, and it actually cuts hard black afterwards. Yeah, really effective. Yeah. I, I really I really enjoy, speaking of, we talked about range with Shelly, that Shelly was getting more opportunities. I think this episode also gave a lot of opportunities for Truman. Hey, hey, guess what happened? Michael guess what Lockean. happened? Guess what happened that we got more opportunities with Mr. Truman? It's when the bad relationship was cut away. 
Here we go. We got bad blood. <laughs> bad blood. Maybe that was what was drained from Josie. Was Taylor Swift? The yeah, Taylor oh, the Swift bad blood. and the bad blood. You've lost one whole Taylor Swift. <laughs> it, you know, you weigh it in grams. You know, eventually you get one Taylor Swift's worth of bad blood out of you. Makes sense. Makes sense. <laughs> but no, I really, I really appreciate what Truman's able to bring. Not to the vocals, obviously that sort of anguish and pain in the vocals, but also in the the facial reactions, the looks that he's able to give Cooper to convey his, his emotions and the layerings of them. Um, mm-hmm. I, I still find, like, I know what was trying to be implied with Cooper. Still doesn't really sit easily with me that we bring up, like, the push on prostitution charges to kind of maybe even mildly invalidate his feelings for her. I, I think what Cooper does is questionable. Yeah, I I do think it's consistent enough with his character, though. Mm -hmm. Cooper always has had this sort of cold nature that sometimes shows up, but it's not always there. Like the first, you know, time where we see him really interrogate someone, it's Bobby Briggs in the pilot. And the way he proceeds with Bobby is very mechanical. And while he's had a great rapport with Truman, I think in this moment we see that sort of cold bluntness show up again where he, I think Cooper genuinely believes that Truman needs to hear the cold, hard reality and that that reality will help. Whether that is true, I think is highly debatable. If Cooper was able to put himself in Truman's shoes, would Cooper want that? Is that what Cooper would want? Because obviously he had to deal with Caroline's death, right? When he, when he, when Caroline died, did he have someone tell him that blunt truth? Did he need the sort of bluntness of of realizing that, not necessarily that Caroline did anything bad, but that his partner had been the one to possibly do this? Does he feel that that is needed? Because it's also kind of playing on the idea that if Josie's bad enough, if Josie committed enough sins, it can help Truman reconcile it. That's fine. and I Which think, is dangerous. And that's well put. I think that's fine. I think that it is important for Cooper to bring up these charges. Well, I don't think will. it is fine. I think it's there's some danger. I, I, I think it's fine in the respects of his character and yeah. how he is trying to assure Truman one way or another. It's just, again, the strange sense that I'm... I don't think that prostitution is all that bad as long as it's in, like, a good, cons- like, consensual effort. But it, I understand that you think that, but we don't want to attach too many of our personal ethical views yeah. on 1990s small town sheriff. And that is completely... Who is by the books, by the law. Yeah. And I think more than even the prostitution charges, it's the idea of secrets. Mm. It's the idea of things about Josie he never knew. That's fair. That given they had an intimate relationship, disclosing your sexual history like that can be important. Yes. So I, I think that there's an element in which it does linger. And that obviously means that she would use sex as a power tool Mm -hmm. Uh, because odds are the prostitution she engaged in, we can probably infer was for Mr. Eckert's purposes more than for her own. Uh, It seems like she was by that point very much in bed with Eckert in more than one way. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I think that that just shows the lengths in which she's willing to use her body and sexuality for those purposes, Mm -hmm. which lends more credence to the idea that that might've been what she was doing with Truman. Mm -hmm that she isn't opposed to using her body that way mm-hmm. as a means to an end. Mm-hmm. I don't know, just things to think about. No, no, I think that, thank you for speaking this forward. I think that this is a way of insight that I feel is important, mm-hmm. so thank you. And I, and I think that the, the danger comes in that Cooper is saying this with the best of intentions potentially, but there's still the concern that that might not be what Truman needs right now. That really might not be what Truman needs right now. Sure, it satisfies a logical concern, 
But right now, what Truman's dealing with is a genuine emotional concern. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if Cooper knows how to respond to that. I don't know if, to be fair, anyone around Truman knows how to respond to that. Mm-hmm. It's a very hard situation. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, Andy's not able to help either. Because when Andy calls Cooper in, because Hawk said, you know, there's a trouble at the bookhouse. There's, there's a problem going on. Andy reports that Truman has broken every piece of furniture that's not nailed down. Mm-hmm. And uh, which it was really impressive because like there were like tilted frames all over the sure. place. So technically, by all means, nailed down. But even some of the ones that were nailed down just, were just, a little roughed. Like I imagine it's just from the disruption. Like if he pushed like a bookcase. But I like the idea that Truman got on the ladder just personally went eh, to yeah. every single frame, like right. tilted a little. Sure. And uh, when he sees Coop, you know, he says, "Hey, Deputy Dale, how's business?" Deputy Dale. I really. I like the characterization of he doesn't even call him Cooper or Coop. He puts it by a position. Yeah. Adds a little bit of alliteration. It's and it makes it both playful and serious. It's something off about it. Mm-hmm. It gets that sort of off kilter feeling that it's clearly going on right now. He has the bottle swaying in his hand kind of as he's saying that. Uh, and then he goes into this little tirade that, you know, that's the good thing about the law. It doesn't breathe. You can't kill it as he has a gun in his hand, which Again, Cooper's sort of matter-of-fact manner of handling things. He just kind of walks up to him. He's like, Harry, I've got an idea. Why don't you give me that gun? <laughs> yeah, he has even this just like this gentle smile. He he is cool as a cucumber. Truman smiles, laughs, says he doesn't believe he's ever handed a gun to anyone in his entire life. And, you know, Cooper responds politely. This might be a fine time to start. Mm-hmm. Truman starts listing off other things he's never done before. He's never crossed the ocean, never got to China. And he kind of, you know, and that idea of China, you know, brings it to Josie. She came to me and she made everything better. Everything, man. So much better. Now, I I don't know. I'll guess I'm kind of curious on your thoughts. I never bought much into the Truman-Josie relationship. I feel like it was certainly given some screen time, but it never was much more than just they have scenes where they sleep together. Mm -hmm. I never really got the emotional connection. And I, I don't know to what extent I would need it because... I think this episode implies so much, Mm -hmm. but I didn't really know as a viewer the extent of the relationship going into this. I didn't go into this thinking, oh man, this is going to have a huge gigantic, I mean, like obviously it's going to affect Truman, but we don't know the personal stakes because we never saw their relationship that much. It's important that, I think the thing that connects it the most is the line that Cooper and Hawk have talking about Truman after they get him to lie down. Mm -hmm. And it's those who don't love easily love the most. And Yeah, a man who doesn't love too easily loves too much. Yep, and he effectively falling back from that. I imagine every scene that I saw with him beforehand had this sort of puppy dog loyalty Mm -hmm. and a close connection with Josie. And as far as we know, the closest connections he has otherwise are with the Bookhouse Boys. We have seen otherwise Truman kind of like staying on the side of the law, staying towards his morals for so long that he is probably one of the more innocent characters as opposed towards those who may be tainted by other influences like we mm. see in the adult world. Let's get a little speculative here. Why do you think he was drawn to Josie? Since we don't see a lot of the relationship, it's what do you think drew him to Josie? Well, I think that maybe there was just a point where they had a small connection after Josie did lose her husband, mm-hmm. and likely Truman was around to investigate that for a bit. Mm-hmm. At the time, Josie either might... there. I think that the 
relationship may have started poorly, but I don't think that it remained it from their reactions and interactions towards the end. But I do believe that maybe Josie was trying to find a way to seem less conspicuous by potentially right. manipulating Truman. That's what I was going to say is the, the cynical side of me would say that she would start the relationship around the time of the investigation to start working on Truman as the sheriff. And maybe not even like start the relationship, but at least sow the seeds. That's what I mean. Start it. Just just begin to plant seeds, as you said. And I, I think it's very convenient for her to have the sheriff of the town loyal to her. Yeah, because that is the primary law enforcement. No one's going to question Truman. Now, the question is, do we think that eventually she did grow an emotional attachment to him? I think so. I think so as well. I think that that's why we saw her hesitance to leave. Mm -hmm. I don't think she would have reacted the same way around the Jonathan Asian man killed arc of the story mm -hmm. if it hadn't been for that. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, what did Truman see in her then? It's hard to say, but I imagine that his overall loyalty to his job to serve and protect... And finding someone who may have been sad and lost and those emotions themselves mm -hmm. could be genuine could have allowed credence to sympathy and allowed an open door for a connection to be made. I His think sense of justice almost mm -hmm. worked against him in that regard then. Mm -hmm. I could see that. She's someone that obviously the circumstances of the investigation were almost a fake form of mourning because she had been involved in this planned death. Any sort of tears she cried there were likely crocodile tears. However, deep within Josie was a sense of unhappiness, mm. was a sense of pain and, and trauma that even if the way in which it was being shown might have been fake, mm. the actual underlying emotions probably had a lot of truth to them. Mm. Uh, there was a loneliness to her spirit, so to speak, that might have reached out to Truman in those moments. And the way that, you know, Hawk words all this after, uh, you know, after they get done kind of calming him down, Hawk said that he's never seen Truman like this before. Quote, it was like taking a hike to your favorite spot, finding a hole where the lake used to be. Josie had power. Yeah. How, just how drained he is by this point. Mm -hmm. uh, which I really enjoy the moment they have. A little bit of comedy. I almost missed it. I had to rewind to make sure I heard it correctly. But uh, the whole port where one of them is like, good man. The other one says, the best. And then you just hear Truman on the bed. Keep going. Just wants to hear more compliments. I really enjoyed that moment of levity. Well, well you could say that or you could be sarcastic of it being like, okay, come on, guys. Or, no, I think it was genuine. You think, I think it was genuine? I think like, no, you wanted to hear, keep, 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 keep it coming, keep, keep it coming. The ego right I now. need it. I kind of think he was serious about it. Mm. Having a good moment with his friends. Only they will truly know. Only this they, fictional group. This is very true. <laughs> the only thing I have with Truman is is the presence of Jones in this episode, who I isn't really a new character because we had seen her before, but now we get a name and a little bit more of her mm -hmm. as an independent character. Mm -hmm. There's this great first person camera view that happens when we get her introduction where she's going through the doorway and looming over Catherine. And then Catherine kind of just looks over from her desk. I really like that shot. She looks over good. from the desk. And when she um, just kind of recognizes that the door was open, it's like, it's the type of hospitality around here. Mm -hmm. Just like gestures to the chair as they sit across from one another. And no, it seems that she really wants to make sure that she can expedite the process of getting Eckert, as well as Josie, sent over to China in order to have their bodies buried. I do like Catherine's wit about this. If they're going to be buried side by side, so they keep keep an eye on each other. Mm -hmm. I like that uh, that way of phrasing it, mm -hmm. which, you know, again, Catherine doesn't buy that that's the real reason she's here. You know, she says, just call me healthy skeptic. And then she pulls a gun out on her. Uh, <laughs> so clearly Catherine doesn't think that's all that's going on. Nothing's ever that simple. 
mm-hmm. with Eckert and Josie. Mm-hmm. So why would it be any different here? Mm-hmm. And then Jones places this mysterious puzzle box on the desk. Says it's a gift from Thomas. It's a little too early to do much speculating because it's just a box. Yeah, I'm surprised that, like, Catherine was just, like, laying slowly, bring it up. I'm surprised that she didn't keep the gun going. It's like, open it up. Right. Please, if this is a bomb, I want to know that there is a risk here. Sure, sure. <laughs> so, unfortunately, we don't get the box opened or any attempt made at that. So What's in the box? Just, What's in the box? Okay, what movie is that from? Uh, it was a movie? I thought it was a TV show. What TV show is it I from? I don't know. Okay, it was from the movie Seven. Okay. It's a David Fincher movie. Okay. It's very good. Oh, thank you. It's got some like industrial, like Nine Inch Nails era soundtrack. Uh, it's got Morgan I Freeman. Know, Morgan I know. Freeman. Uh, well, oh, I know that one. Brad Pitt. I know that one. Uh, I knew that you know one. know Brad Pitt? I think I do. Uh, but I'm think, trying to think of Brad Pitt, but my brain keeps getting Leonardo DiCaprio instead. Oh, they're totally different. They're totally different. <laughs> and then it's also got a certain actor from House of Cards who we don't talk about anymore. Yeah, I haven't seen As it. that guy. Okay. Well,. That's okay. He's a good actor, but um, we don't talk about him anymore. We should just make a separate podcast of just us, like, talking about things that I don't know about. You've, you've made this joke a few times already in the podcast before, so I think you really want to make that podcast. I think you're a glutton for this punishment. I am a glutton for something. Speaking of glutton for punishment, uh, we later see Jones knock out a random bookhouse boy downstairs. Who knows who that kid was? I mean, maybe he's the guy who was going to watch Truman in case he did that stuff well, again. Presumably, but who is he? Uh-huh. I was trying to analyze the back of his head, and uh, he has a floof. It's not Joey Paulson. It's not Joey Paulson. It's no. not Joey Paulson. Big rip. It should have been Joey Paulson. I mean, as far as the goes, I hardly know Joey Paulson. So. I guess I also don't want Joey Paulson to get, like, massive head trauma, so. Yeah, I, 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 I don't wouldn't think... wish that upon the poor kid. He's, like, a nice kid. I don't think that even, like, getting a reoccurring character or a new character, it's not going to do them many blessings to be the guy on the camera for five seconds That's before fair. being bludgeoned. That's fair. And then uh, Jones goes upstairs, and she undresses and joins Truman in bed. After, uh-huh. of course, placing a gun placing on Placing a gun. And stand there. Mm-hmm. So... What do you make of Jones's long con here, going in the bed with Truman with a gun nearby? Where's that going? It's going down the street singing do a diddy diddy dum diddy do. And I gotta say, I don't. How much? What was Eckerd? What are we doing? Those, I... are, those are some good questions. Mm. Want to just leave it at that for right now? Mm. Let's leave it at that right now. Let's talk about something much more concrete and certain in the form of Major Briggs and the Log Lady. Okay. So we see them at the Double R Diner. Major Briggs uh, comments that his pie is compelling, yep. which Shelly just kind of awkwardly leaves. Yep. I don't really know how to respond receipt. to that. Mm. Which, I mean, to be fair, that is Bobby's father. And I kind of, you know, forget. I think of Major Briggs as his own character. But when Shelly sees him, she probably just thinks, that's my weird, abu- like, not abusive, but despondent, neglectful boyfriend, his father. Mm-hmm. So I can imagine they're not really close. Yeah. based on, you know, the way yeah. they act. And then uh, I mean, Log like, Lady shows up and gets close enough to touch the triangles. With this expression on her face. With an expression. How would you describe that expression? That's very eloquent. Do you have any words for it? Mm, uh, why do you need words when you've got sounds? Uh, usually words is the way we communicate ideas. I think that my use of onomatopoeia, which is a word in and of itself, is good enough in this case because I don't think that there are proper words to express those expressions. Okay, fair enough. Well, they decide to express some expressions over to Cooper at the proper law enforcement facility of your choice, the sheriff's station, where Briggs comments that he had found that triangular, 
you know, the three triangles, almost looks like the toxic radiation symbol, right? Yep. He saw that on his neck after he had disappeared, presumably where he thought he went to the White Lodge. We're mm-hmm. still not really sure what happened there. Mm-hmm. And then the log lady got this mark when she was seven years old on her leg. She was told that she had disappeared for a day in the woods, but all she could remember was a flash of light and then the mark being on the leg later. Uh, that same flash of light and the call of the owl, she said she had not encountered ever since, except for one other time, which was right before her husband died in the fire. Mm-hmm. And while Cooper has these images drawn on the blackboard, you mentioned that really good shot where it's Cooper's face kind of forward in the foreground, yep. and then those two in the background. Yep. He has drawn the two symbols, the radiation-looking symbol, and, and then the two peaks. Yeah, at first I was like thinking to myself, was like, okay, so it's another two sets of triangles, and then he has like this extra like jagged edge on mm-hmm. both sides. I'm like, okay. Right. I need to find shapes now because I was thinking to myself, it was like, maybe the first triangle was the person she was married sure, to. Sure, sure. But no, um, it is their interesting choices. I'm sure that we'll see them come up later. Don't have any information on them now. But what's the most telling is that the flash of light and the owls are present. And we know that there is a theme with fire, to say the least, with something like Fire Walk With Me, which mm-hmm. we're coming up to, and this fire coming back. Will we have a fire come back completely? Who knows? Um, it's been a while since we've heard fire. Uh, we've heard owls plenty. We've heard owls plenty. I, I really think this would land better for me if we hadn't had so much You know, owl maybe content. if Wyndham Earl was looking at, like, a bunch of pictures of, like, forest fires at the desk. Of... You know, you, you have at your hotel. <laughs> yeah. It's like, ooh, isn't this quite charming? It's all just pictures of the fire at the sawmill. Ben's <laughs> non-so-subtle flex. <laughs> Look at Leo's arsonry on display. Mm-hmm. This is going to kill a lot of ferrets. I'm going to kill a lot of ferrets. Uh, also interesting, when the drawings are on the board, Briggs says he's connecting with something. And so does the log lady, but she can't say what. Which, again, if Major Briggs and the log lady are at a loss for this, who would know, right? The owls? The owls. Possibly the owls. Well, I have one last question for you, Professor. Oh, boy. In a series I re- affectionately refer to as the wonderful and strange question of the day. Mm-hmm. Professor, are you indeed ready for this question? Um, it's a I'm, bit of a doozy. I am. I, I will say that there's only one thing that I'm ready for more than this question, and it's mm. when Cooper will say "wonderful and strange." It might happen. What if it's actually me? I did a great <laughs> Cooper impersonation, and it's just all been a ruse. Oh, how impressed no. would you be? Um, I think that we didn't properly title this podcast then. Okay, but like you, you gotta admit you give me props for that, right? Um, like if, if I was that convincing of a Cooper that you've listened to this thing for like more than twenty four times, you have deceived me over twenty four times. Why would I be proud or happy? Impressed. Of this? Impressed. Do you want me to be impressed by your deceit? Is this what you want? I think deceit is a skill, and I think that those who are talented at a skill deserve some recognition. Okay, Wyndham, what's the question? So, if you got to pick three Twin Peaks characters to get their own spinoff book or their own spinoff movie, other than Laura Palmer and Dale Cooper, because they obviously got that. Oh, yeah. Who would you pick outside of those two? If you were to give them either a movie or a book... Give me three. I will say I'll give a little bit of a fourth person uh, also, like a fourth place. (laughs) Okay. Because these other three tie for first. Okay, Um, wow. But the fourth place would probably be, I'd be curious on a story, like a detective-style book story, but in the position of a criminal background with Mm. Evelyn Marsh. Okay. I would like to see just the dynamic that she would have to face in her life to get in her position, especially with this rich man, especially with Malcolm Sloan, I would be fascinated by that. Okay. But that's the fourth place entry. Okay. The three others, mm-hmm. 
are mm-hmm. Harold. Mm-hmm. The fact that we don't really get much of Harold, and even if like he doesn't really have much connection with his own personal past, mm-hmm. having someone in that kind of poor psychological state of being afraid of the outside world, mm-hmm. I think could make a very compelling read of just someone constantly anxious, constantly worried, but lives off of the memories and the perspectives of others. Mm-hmm. And maybe even getting snippets of those other ones as he may even compare it to its his own perspective and his own life. I think that a man surrounded by stories and put into one story is something that I would really like to see that would twist my own perceptions on how a book is made. Are you imagining how much of the stories are his versus other people's uh, in his I, collection? I think that it should be twisted. I okay. think that... The, it should intertwine a little bit a little as he tries to seek out the, that empathy. I sure. want an unreliable narrator. Okay. Yeah, no, I think that's that interesting. Be, yeah. Um, I think that I would want a Bob story mm-hmm. because not only is he kind of just this strange, rather disgusting entity that seems to prey off of other people's, but mm-hmm. I do find a fascination with villainous forces that would at the very least be interesting to dive into the head Mm. of Bob, whether or not this is going to be like a full book or if it's just going to be a bathroom stall that can be shipped to your home. Remember, movie is still an option too. Movie is still an option. I don't want to see a Bob movie. I don't want to see what goes on in Bob's head. Okay. Like you'd want to read about it. I don't want to read about it, but I think I can keep more sanity. Clearly clearly you do want to read about it. You picked it. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I, I will respectfully disagree I, I, with this one. I will, I will say that I want to read things that I don't want to read That's as much enough. sense. That I get what you mean. Like I, I want something to challenge. Well, you think it'd be better as a book than a movie? I think it would be. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm going to respectfully disagree with this one a little bit for my own personal taste. I do think your position on it is interesting. I, I would just say that for myself, the less I know, sometimes the better. I kind of like Bob being mysterious. So given what you know about Bob right now... I don't know. If I were you, I wouldn't want to know too much more. But I that's mean, just me. As far as it goes, I don't need to know more about Bob. I just want Bob to be placed into a story. You don't need what you want. I want to see Bob in a direct action and how he feels about himself. Okay. Like, I don't need to know, like, this is my history. This is where I was born. This is what I actually am. No, I want to see a story that involves Bob in his environment mm-hmm. and his perspective. I think All that right. that would be engaging. And what's your other pick? Your last and third. This is going to be a left field one. Is this your number one or are they not ranked? Again, all three are number one. Oh, they're all three ranked. You've tied, uh, yes. Where there's a fourth place off to okay. the side. So what is your third tie for first? The Tremon Boy. Oh, okay. Little Magician. Little Magician. Little, little David Lynch. Not only a like young perspective, but on how strange he appears. It was a hard time because... Yes, I already kind of chose someone who is of the more strange nature of Twin Peaks, Mm -hmm. but I don't think that I'll get the same tone out of this strange boy Mm -hmm. and his perspectives on the people who may be passing by or the things that he may be able to affect, or even if it's going to be small little inconsequential things like making the beans appear, if you will. The corn. The corn. It was creamed corn. It was creamed corn. Not beans. It could have been beans at it one point. It could not have been beans. You had to practice with something. It could only be cream beans. corn. But no, I, I, I'd be fascinated out of all these stories for good. different reasons, but primarily based off their perspectives. Very good. Do you mind if I share mine as well? I mean, uh, for me, it seems that I really want a book that doesn't really feel like a traditional book uh, for mm-hmm. these three p- 
position. So I want to break the book format. But yes, please proceed with yours. Okay. Um, mine, I will say, are ranked. So my number three pick would be Annie in the Convent. Okay. I would find it interesting to know more about her time there. Okay. And I can't reveal to the extent to which we do or do not find information. I'll just say that there are things about Annie that I'm curious about that don't get discussed that I would like to know more. I'll just say that. My second pick would be Hawk from the time of being a younger person in the Bookhouse Boys. So I'm thinking around the time that Truman's father was still around and still like leading the group. Uh, back when it was like them in high school, you would have had Harry Truman as one of his friends. You would have had Ed pre-Nadine marriage. Mm -hmm. And you would have had Toad in the Bookhouse Boys. He's a confirmed member. Mm -hmm. As well as Hank, of course. Okay. So a nice little Bookhouse Boys book with the perspective of Hawk. Yes. I, I thought of the characters. I, I don't want Hank to be the main character because that'll filter through much his perspective. I like the idea of Hank being someone observed rather than the one doing the observing. And I figured Ed... I don't really necessarily want an edit for a narrator for a whole book. Nothing against the guy, but I don't know. I don't know if I want Ed's perspective the whole time. Truman, I feel like is a good candidate with his father being kind of the one in charge, but it almost seems like too obvious. He'd be the too obvious protagonist. Hawk is a way of words. Hawk, Hawk is a poetic man. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you can sustain Hawk's voice, that'd be kind of cool to see. Mm -hmm. Please don't say that your third option is Dick Tremaine. My number one favorite because is if, Josie. Oh, thank God. I would like a story with Josie when she teamed up with Eckert and the situations in Hong Kong and kind of her early life leading into things. Mm. Um, that is one sense of mystery that I wouldn't mind knowing more about. Okay. And I think that with everything with Josie, it's always more complicated than what it appears anyway. Mm -hmm. So I think even if I got some answers, I don't think it would reveal everything to me. Mm -hmm. um, and all three of these I'd imagine being books, just the same as all three of yours sounded to be books. Books I love quotations. films. Films my favorite format of media. Mm -hmm. I watch a lot of movies. But what I like about doing a book is that, one, you don't have as much of a margin for error because you don't have to worry about like it being directed badly or cast badly, especially for younger characters. I don't want to see someone younger portraying not as well someone who has a different role, right? Like I could see them recasting Hawk and it not working out. Whereas with a book, you have a chance to get in their first-person perspective and get their mindset and that's something I would really enjoy. Honestly, you can get like the small little quirks and ideas that are in the back of their heads that couldn't really be portrayed on yes. something that's as visual. And all three on my side and all three on your side are all relating to first person perspectives like that. Aren't we going to be seeing Dune for the podcast or no? We will be seeing Dune. Yeah, that's that's one that I'm kind of afraid of because the mindset thing is important. I have read Dune. Hey, if you come out not liking Dune, you can join David Lynch because he also doesn't like Dune. <laughs> Actually, I really like Dune. So uh, I mean the movie Dune. Oh. He doesn't like his Dune. He doesn't like his own Dune. No, he oh, very no. much hates his own Dune. <laughs> oh, no. So if you end up not liking the Dune movie, you're in good company. Okay. <laughs> and now that you know you're Duned, for that certain failure mm -hmm. <laughs> to get doomed. I, I, Dune. I, get, I get it. I get it. I get oh, it. It's a very subtle joke. Nope. Um, I think I'm ready to bid this uh, podcast episode adieu. Okay. Any final words, Professor? I don't know who started Say No to Ghostwood. After all, it was a poster and now Ben has adopted it. But at the very least, listener, be sure to take care and clone your weasel at home. But don't hold me liable. Goodbye! Has science gone too far? No. <laughs> <laughs>